Well, good morning, Pathway family. As Pastor Brian uh, gave me a great introduction there, uh, my name is Eric Smith, and uh, it's been my pleasure uh, to serve as your board chair over the past uh, couple years here. So uh, looking forward to our time together. Um, Also, uh, keeping a prayer for Pastor Brian, as he said that he's out in Kansas City right now, uh, bringing a strong word uh, to our brothers and sisters in Christ out there. As I was preparing for this message, uh, one thing that uh, kind of took me back was one of my favorite memories as a child growing up is I loved to take walks with my dad. Um, I did not grow up here in uh, South Florida. I grew up up north, and particularly this time of year was one of the times of year that I loved it the most because I loved nothing more than a cold winter snowy evening uh, going out behind our home. We had uh, you know woods and a field, and I loved just walking. Never knew exactly where we were going, but I knew that I was following in his footsteps, and it was just really a time uh, for, for myself as I look back on it as, as a child growing up and as a teenager just to really reflect. I always took that time to reflect and to consider and to just kind of think about what was going on in my life and where it was headed, and uh, obviously now, uh, obviously with a family of my own, I think about my dad and the time that he spent uh, probably doing a lot of pondering as well, uh, whether it was work or family or whatever circumstances might have been going on. Uh, there was no doubt that uh, there was a lot of considering. Uh, we didn't do a lot of talking with each other on those walks uh, because it was just, as I said, just more contemplative and a time for us to kind of take a step back and to consider. And so that's what I'm going to ask of you today. Uh, we're going to take a little walk with each other. We're going to take a little journey as we take a look at uh, Jesus' final words on this Sermon on the Mount as he's addressing the people and what it looks like to really build on the foundation versus building our house on the sand. And what Jesus is calling us to here in Matthew chapter 7 at the end is he wants us to consider really what it looks like to dig in and to anchor into him. This is so much more than a passage. It's a very popular and famous passage, but it's so much more than just a choice between when I die, am I going to heaven or hell? Really, when you take a look at this passage and you you look at the entirety of Jesus' sermon from the Beatitudes all the way now to the end where he's saying, hey, I want you to make a choice with regards to how it is that you're going to build your life and what you're going to build your life on. It comes back to this idea and this understanding of the posturing of our heart. And so he draws his listeners on the hillside back into this. And he says, I want you to examine your heart. I want you to consider your heart as you take a walk with me, as you're considering to walk with me. And in that, we're called to make a choice. So turn with me in the scripture now to Matthew chapter 7, please. We're going to start with verse 24. You'll see it up on the screen. And these are Jesus' words. And he says this. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine... And does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. You see, Jesus understood his audience. He understood the hearts of man that he was reaching out to and that he was speaking into. 
You see, there was a period of time here from the end of Malachi to, to this point in Jesus' ministry, there's about a 400-year gap here where there wasn't a whole lot going on. There was some silence from God to his people. And no doubt, if I'm to put myself into their shoes from generation to generation over those 400 years, I'm sure I would start to lose some hope. I'd start to lose this, this feeling of like, uh, are, are we really to receive a savior? Is the Messiah really to come? Because they, they, they knew what the prophets of old had testified to them in the Old Testament, that a king was to come, that a new life was to be had. But in this period of waiting, there's no doubt that probably some of that hope began to get dampened. And so as Jesus comes onto the scene here, we see that he, he begins speaking of, of things that they had never heard. And it's safe to say this is the most radical sermon that the world has ever heard then, and I trust to say now. When you think about what Jesus was really calling them to, you see these people during that time, they were an oppressed people. They were under Roman rule. They had heard and they had read you know, from their ancestors of what it was like to be in the great kingdom, kingdom of David. They knew that a king was supposed to come from that line. When, where, how? Many of them were getting dismayed. But here Jesus is laying out for them and he begins to speak in a way to their hearts that their hearts had never been spoken to. The religious leaders had laid out so many rules around the law that many people were feeling like there's no way I can ever attain or I can measure up to such a thing as this. And then you have this man by the name of Jesus that comes onto the scene and he starts challenging their hearts in such a way. He starts speaking into their lives in such a way that they had never experienced before. And so much of it was paradoxical. So much of it, as we call it today, was this idea of kingdom economics where he's calling them in such a way to, listen, if you want to be first, you're going to need to be last. If you want to have more, then give more away. And so there's no doubt that as they heard his teachings on anger, on forgiveness, on judgment, on lust, on treasures that we lay up for ourselves here on earth and not in heaven. And they see the way he's challenging them in such a way, no, no doubt they left astonished. No doubt they were walking away amazed because of what it was requiring of them in their hearts. Some years ago, God blessed me with the ability and the resources to uh, open up a business of my own. And uh, wow, what an education I've received over the years. Uh, nothing that a business school could ever prepare you for. But one element that I came to recognize real uh, quickly uh, in, in the young life of, of that company was this understanding of what's known in economics as an opportunity cost. And so when you look at opportunity cost, opportunity cost is, is really this idea of assessing a value to what it is that you're not going to do. It's the cost that we incur by not pursuing an opportunity. If you go to the next slide, you can see it explained as this. What is it that I am missing out on an opportunity because of what I am unwilling to do or give up or pay now? And so when you think about that 
in relation to Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount and what he's calling us to with this foundational living. So many of us, going back to that thought of our fire insurance card, as we're trying to walk out this life of being a follower of Christ, many of us can get lured into this false sense of hope of that, you know what, I've, I've said the prayer, I've got my salvation, and that's where, that's where it begins and ends. And Jesus is saying, foundational living, choosing between the sand and the rock, is so much more than just that. Once more, it's about anchoring into me, anchoring into him and what he has to offer And so we can never lose sight of that. And the beautiful thing about Jesus is that he never calls us to a place that he doesn't give us the tools and the equipping for. Let me say that again. He never asks of us or calls us to a place that he's not willing to give us the tools or to equip us for. And so when we look about you know, when we look at what it means to really anchor in to the bedrock, to dig down beneath the sand, Jesus gives us the prescription for this. He gives us the tools. And you've got to go back to the beginning to remind yourself of what those are. And we see that they're found really in the Beatitudes. And we're going to highlight those in just a moment. And Dr. Smith did a great job months ago as he opened up the Sermon on Mount with those Beatitudes. But really, at the heart of it, those Beatitudes, those are the anchors that anchor us down into the foundation. That when the storms of life start raging and the swirl starts happening, it is those anchors into the bedrock that allows us to stand and to stand firm. I remember a few uh, years back, you know, when we think about opportunity cost and we think about what we have to give up to really do that, to really anchor in, I reminded, uh, actually, (laughs) Randy spoke to it, the Christmas Eve service. I'll never forget the Christmas Eve service from a few years back for for really two reasons. Uh, Reason number one, uh, my family will probably give me a glow stick this year. Um, I unbeknownst to me, accidentally lit my child's hair on fire, okay? I kid you not, my family reminds me of it every year. Uh, My youngest child, Alexandra, I love her dearly. I can talk a little more about her in this service because she's not in this one. Uh, But uh, that kid's got a, just got this mane that's just, it's wild, it's uncontrolled. Uh, A few years back and it's just curly and poofy and everywhere. And so I've got my beautiful, uh, you know, candle and uh, I'm all into the silent, silent night and I'm looking over this way. Unbeknownst it to me, uh, her head's right here and her hair's out here. And uh, you, ever, you ever smelled hair on fire? <laughs> okay. You, you can't, you can't miss it. You know, that's not the fragrance of the lady in front of you or the man's deodorant behind you. That is hair on fire and you never miss it. And, uh, you know, I got that smell and it was like, oh, mercy. So we always get a kick out of that. And uh, no doubt I'll be getting a glow stick this year for Christmas for in silent night. And uh, uh, I always get a good laugh out of that. But the second reason I, I, I remember uh, Christmas Eve from a few years back is that uh, we had an interim pastor at the time, and his name was Pastor Tim West, for those of you who were here during that time. And 
I knew that he wanted to have a conversation with me that night on Christmas Eve. He was going to, after the services here, he was going to be traveling back to Texas, back to his home state. He said, Eric, I, I want to I wanna talk to you tonight. And, oh, okay, Pastor Tim, yeah, sounds great. And uh, during that service, um, all of a sudden, I received a tap on my shoulder. Just kind of odd. You know, we're in the middle of the service, and we're singing, and I get a tap on my shoulder. And there's this lady behind me, an, an, an older lady, and i never seen her before. I didn't know her name, but she leaned over and she says, hey, listen, I just want to let you know that um, I see your struggle. Excuse me? She said, I want you to know that I see your struggle and that God sees you. I thought, whoa, wow. Well, she didn't know exactly what my struggle was. See, my struggle resolved around, or revolved around opportunity cost in that moment of my life. See, uh, uh, at that point in my life, I knew what Pastor Tim was going to want to talk to me about that night on his drive back to Texas, not the whole drive back. He said, you know, the church is going through some transition, and it's time for the next wave of leadership to kind of, you know, step into the fold here. And I knew he, he was going to talk to me about church leadership and the role that I'd be willing to play in it. And I was resistant. In fact, I was so resistant that I had told a um, previous pastor on staff that I would never be in church leadership. Yeah. Uh. Try telling, telling God no and using the word never and see what he does. Yeah, dare you on that one. See, I said I, I'd, never, I'd never be in church leadership because I, you know, I, I was born and raised in the church, had grown up you know, in the church up north, and I'd seen my fair share of whatever you want to call it, church politics and splits and arguments and all this other stuff. And I said, you know what? My life is comfortable right here where you're at. My life is very comfortable there. I'm good right there. I can love Jesus. I can serve others. And I am just perfect right there about third row in, you know, from the back. There we are. Yet God was beginning to tug on my heart. He was saying, you know what? That's not where I want you to be. I'm calling you to a little something more. And I want you to consider the cost. And so in that moment, I'm faced with opportunity cost. If I say no to God in this moment, what is it that I could be missing out on? Since saying yes is one of the greatest decisions I've made, also one of the hardest decisions I've made. It's been great being able to journey with Pastor Brian, the other board members, the other pastors and staff here. It's been an absolute blessing being able to walk this journey with them and ultimately with you. But that opportunity cost, just as, as God was calling me to task, I believe he's calling each and every one of us here today to examine in that same way. As we look at the next slide, I put it to you this way. My question to you is this, what aspects of the abundant Christian life do I not experience, are you not experiencing, nor enjoying because you are unwilling through a lack of obedience to do what is required to have them? Let me repeat that again. What aspects of the abundant Christian life do I not experience nor enjoy because I am willing through a lack of obedience to do what is required to have them. See, Jesus lays out for us, he says, you know, if you want to build on my rock, 
If you want to build into my foundation, if you want to be assured that you're not going to get swept away in the storms of life, he's saying there's things that I'm going to ask of you and there's things that I'm going to require of you. And I know obedience is not always a popular word. I know it's not something that we love in our culture because it calls us to make choices and it calls us to task. But I want to look at these elements. I want to look, as I would say, these building blocks of what it means to be anchored in. And so when we look at the Beatitudes, I want you to understand first and foremost that when he is calling us to this life of being anchored in, he is calling us to what is known as a blessed life. And we don't have time to get into all the Greek of the Beatitudes today, but it's important that you understand what the blessed life looks like and what it means truly in the heart of a disciple. The Greek root word there is makarios, and what it says is this, it's an internal state of being. It's being indwelt by God himself, a contentment regardless of circumstances. It talks about being fully satisfied, and you cannot have this without having God himself. Notice what it does not say there. It doesn't say anything about happiness. Dr. Smith did a great job a couple months back of, of bringing this about when he was, he was laying out the eight Beatitudes to us. Is that we understand that happiness is fleeting. Happiness is something that, that comes and goes quickly. It's like the rush on Christmas morning of opening up those gifts and it feels awesome. And then how quickly it just dissipates after a few hours or even days. But Jesus is saying this, he's saying, hey, when you choose to be anchored into me, I am going to give you a blessedness. I'm going to give you a life full of contentment and satisfaction. When you start doing these things, when you start positioning your heart in such a way that's counterculture to the world around you, but don't mistake that I will come and I will fill you in such a way that no one will ever be able to mistake, that you yourself will not be able to mistake. And then from that, there will be an outpouring in your life. So consider today as we go through these eight, consider today, take inventory, just as I would take a walk on those cold, snowy evenings, and I would consider, consider with me now, where are you at as you take a look at these anchors, as you take a look at these hallmarks of what it means to be rooted in. Take a look at the first four. When we talk about being poor in spirit, talk about this mourning, we talk about this meekness, even a a hungering and a thirsting for righteousness, what we're really talking about is a positioning of our heart. And I don't think that there's any mistake that Jesus orders them in such a way. Let me remind us that we do not serve a God of chaos. We do not serve a God of disorder. We serve a God of order. He aligns. And so when Jesus is speaking to to, to the crowds, after he says repent, he goes right into his Sermon on the Mount. And the very first thing he teaches on is what it means to be poor in spirit. And so we know from the Greek that this is, this is talking about a brokenness, a spiritual brokenness within our hearts. It's this understanding that we come to a, a, as a man and as a woman that we are spiritually bankrupt. That when we legitimately 
place ourselves at the foot of the cross, at the foot of the king, we recognize just how inadequate we are. There's an, there's an individual, I'm just going to call him Bob, that I've been able to journey with over the years. And Bob would always challenge me and others around him, but he would always bring up you know, the, about man's obesity of thoughts. And he would challenge me at times when he felt like my thoughts were a little too grandeur and puffed. He challenged me in those moments. And essentially what he was challenging me on was this understanding of brokenness and being poor in spirit. And the need that if we're going to serve in God's kingdom, if we are going to say that I'm going to be a follower of Christ and I want to be rooted in to this idea of foundational living, if we're not willing to take the crown off our head and lay it at the foot of the cross, we have no business talking about being a peacemaker, about showing mercy. Because none of it's going to work unless we know who we are to him. And so when we go from poor in spirit, what begins to happen within our lives is this, is that we we begin to to take on this this idea of mourning. There's a little bit of almost a sadness that that comes over us. And it's not that we walk around like, whoa, woe is me and sad and give me the tissue and ah, you know. No, it's this understanding that when we really come to the foot of the cross, we begin to understand, as I said earlier, who we are next to the king we understand then, he begins to reveal to us what the sin in our life causes to us from an unhealthy and from a damaging standpoint, but even more so to those around us. And that's where that mourning comes from. That's where that understanding of like, oh. You imagine what our households would look like when we showed more poor in spirit when we showed more mourning for our behaviors and actions. Imagine what our marriages would look like, our relationships. I think far too often we forget about this brokenness at the foot of the cross. And it shows in the way we deal with others. What it brings about in in the man then is this. It brings about this understanding of meekness. And so when Jesus is saying, hey, here's another anchor into the foundation of what it means to build your your house on the rock, once more, he's not talking about this, this meekness of just getting bowled over by life and people. No, this meekness is rooted in this idea of will. Not your will, but God's will. It talks about this demonstrating of, of self-control. It's really about God control. Yes, it's self-control, but at the hands of God, at the hands of his will, where I'm taking my will and I'm laying it to the side. It's at this point now, really, as we're positioning ourselves and our hearts, that this Holy Spirit that he gives us, that, is, that we are indwelt with, begins to stir in us in such a way then where we begin to hunger and thirst. We get this appetite for this righteousness. Now, that term righteousness, for a lot of people, we get turned off by that term because we associate it with self-righteousness. We associate it with this idea of being puffed up, of better than thou, has nothing to do with that. Think of righteousness as this, okay? Right living. And let me say that again. Righteousness, think of it in, in these terms. 
right living. According to who? We'll go back to meekness. Your will's been broken according to his will and what he desires for you in your life and what he's laid out through his word. And so when we're hungering and thirsting, we know that he shows up. Let us not forget that he calls these individuals blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Don't forget what blessedness means. It means that you are fully satisfied, that you are content, that you are indwelt by him. And in that, there is a peace that transcends anything that the world could ever give you. Can we not lose sight of the fact that before we recognize who we are, we have to understand whose we are? In understanding whose we are, hey, we are a son and daughter of of the king. We are a son and daughter of the creator. See, he created each and every one of our hearts. He knows our hearts. He also knows that he created a void within our heart that nothing on earth can fill other than him. And so it's so important that as as we are talking about foundational living, that we not lose sight of that as we are walking this life out. Because I think for many of us, that void might be a little larger than we'd like to give it credit for, might be a little emptier than we would like to admit. And so what is it that we're looking within our life right now to try to fill that void? Are we looking to our spouse to fill us in such a way that God never intended? Where we're circumventing our relationship with him and looking at our spouse instead and saying that's your problem? Are we looking at other relationships that same way? Are we looking at our work in such a way where we're looking for fulfillment? We're looking for the blessed life through our work and through our identity in our work. Where Jesus is saying, that's my territory, that void, that's mine. When we position ourselves at the foot of the cross and we begin to take on these anchors, these hallmarks here, he will meet us in that place and he will fill it. I love what happens next. What happens next is you notice that there's a shift here. There's a shift from a posturing of the heart before God where all of a sudden he takes this heart of ours, he fills us, he meets us in this place and then there's this outpouring. And so as we're building our house on the rock, all of a sudden we notice that he has done a work in our hearts where we begin to take on these attributes of mercy. We begin to take on these attributes of purity in heart. When you look at those two elements, they're pretty profound. How many of us have a great propensity for mercy? It's a hard one. I can tell you assuredly that there's not enough mercy in Eric on his own might that could come even close to showing you any sort of compassion. Okay, I'm very real about who I am and I know who I am. And I can assuredly tell you that I could maybe fake it, I could try, you'd see right through it. 
but I need to be broken. I need to be emptied of self so that he can come in. And as he comes in, what he does is he begins to transform the way that we see people. And it is through that and through the understanding that I don't have a whole lot to offer except through him that I begin to see others as he sees them. And it's in that moment that I'm able to begin to show mercy. I'm able to meet, what is mercy? Real simple. You're meeting people right where they're at, right in their mess. God sent Jesus to do that for you and and me. He met us right where we're at in our mess. The good news is he loves us too much to keep us there. Amen? But you can't show mercy if you've not been broken if your heart's not positioned. He then calls us to a purity. A purity is simply this. I don't, I don't, want, I, I, I don't want a straddling of the fence. I don't, want an un, I don't want a mixed allegiance. If you're choosing to follow me, follow me. But let's not be mixed in our heart's desires. He wants the one heart desire to be his. And in doing so, he proves faithful. And then the very, the, the very last, last one outside of persecution is really at, at this moment, he then begins to insert people's lives into our path. And notice I said that he begins to insert people's lives into our path. Oftentimes, maybe we, we, we go looking for people's lives a little too much when we're not quite ready, when he hasn't quite, quite done a work in us. Have you ever seen somebody try to be a peacemaker who wasn't pure in heart and had mixed motives? There's a reason why he doesn't put peacemaking first. You can't be a peacemaker without the love of Christ. It just doesn't happen. They're called meddlers. First Peter ranked them pretty high on a list of evildoers, I believe. That's another message. But in that, Jesus says this. He says, hey, it's critical that you build your house on the rock because the storms are coming. The floodwaters are going to rise. And if you built your house on that creek bed that seemed pretty stable, seemed pretty rock solid, you're going to be sorely disappointed one day. He talked about persecution. He says, hey, be willing to suffer for Jesus' sake. And and I'll say this about persecution in this, and this is probably another message as well for Pastor Brian, not me. But let's not mistake persecution for bad choices. I, I sit with a lot of individuals and uh, time and time again I hear I'm being persecuted or oh the, persecu- oh, the devil's after me. The devil's-, devil's not after you right now because you're making so many bad choices you don't have to be. You're feeling the consequences of your bad choices. That is in stark reality to persecution people. And let us not lose sight of that. Will, they, will there be persecution coming? Absolutely. Do you need to go looking for it? No, you don't. When you're living, when you're doing right living, when you're living for Jesus, it will find you. And the reason why it will find you is this, is that 
a lost soul does not like to be reminded of their shortcomings. And so you don't even need to speak a whole lot of words for persecution to find you. When you're living as Jesus wants you to live, you will be a walking reminder to people of their lack of what they're missing. And the world doesn't like that. The world will rebel against that and they'll find a way to rebel against you. But take heart. In closing here, I want us to flip over to uh, 1 Peter. I I love Peter and I love his words here uh, that he's uh, speaking in his first letter to uh, the early church, to the early believers here. Uh, 1 Peter is writing to them in such a way of, of saying, hey, listen, I know life as we talk about persecution here, as we, we talk about having you know, to make some choices. I know that life is difficult, but I don't want you to lose heart because when you're anchored in to Christ and his foundation, Peter's reminding them that, listen, you will be able to overcome. You will be able to stand the test of time. The circumstances of life, they will be difficult, they'll be unpleasant, it's going to be stressful at times, but he's stressing to his readers that at the end of it all, God will be there to strengthen and establish and confirm you. And so look at his words. Peter says this. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. If that doesn't get you excited with a hope and a joy for why you should be choosing to anchor into the bedrock, I don't know what else will. Just as you don't need to go looking for persecution, I think you would all test and agree with me that you don't need to go looking for the trials of life either, right? They seem to find us. And they're a swirling. But we need to understand that we've got this hope. We've got this steadiness that the world can't supply. They can give us all the sheets of plywood they want. But they're not going to supply when the hurricane force winds start coming. Only the God of peace is going to be able to establish us in those moments. I love the author here. When, when you think about Peter... And you think about how Jesus restored Peter. Peter knows that really when it comes down to decision making and when it comes to this element of sand versus rock, my will versus God's will, me wearing the crown versus the king, true king wearing the crown, Peter knows the tactics of the enemy because Peter's lived them. He knows the enemy for the past couple thousands of years From the time of man, the two handles of the enemy haven't really changed. 
The enemy knows that ultimately it really boils down to this understanding of pride and fear of where he's going to attack each and every one of us at. He's going to try to prowl around. He's going to try to roar. He's going to get in your ear about this understanding of pride and forget about the whole poor in spirit. Forget about that understanding of meekness in that morning. No, you keep your will because you need control. You know better than anybody else. If I were to summarize pride, I'd summarize pride as this. I define it as this. having no need for God. What's in our circumstances? What's in your circumstances in life right now where you're saying, I have no need of God for that? Where deep down you really are recognizing, I probably do, I probably should, but I'm not willing to release it. That's pride. Peter knew a little something about pride. Jesus looked at Peter and said, hey, Peter, three times you're gonna deny me. And Peter said, never will I do that. I'll never do that. Just like Eric said, I'll never serve in church leadership. How's that working? Peter said, uh-uh, not me. Well, after the rooster crows, what'd Peter do? He denied him three times. I'm reminded of John, the gospel of John at the very end. I love this picture of our Jesus that establishes and confirms us and strengthens us. After Peter had denied Jesus and some time had passed here, we find Peter, who had gone back to doing what he had done before, Jesus said, come and follow me. He went back fishing. And so I can imagine Peter sitting out there in the boat, pretty despondent, pretty broken down. And as he's out there, it says they're catching no fish. But then Peter recognizes something on the shore. There's a warm glow. So as Peter looks towards that warm glow, he recognizes it's Jesus. Peter gets out and he runs to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He feeds him. And he establishes him. He strengthens him and he confirms him in that moment. Just as Peter had denied him three times, what does Jesus now say in the Gospel of John? It says this. It says, Peter, if you love me, Feed my sheep. If you love me, tend them. If you love me, feed them. Three times we see the cycle broken and reversed, and we now have a Peter established and strengthened and ready to go out and set the world on fire for Jesus. Was there anxiety? Was there pride that had to be battled there in Peter's life? Absolutely. But Peter counted the cost, the opportunity cost of not following Jesus. And in that moment, Peter set off on a trajectory that would forever change the world as an obedient soldier for Christ. There's, there's an old song that uh, grew up singing in, in our church and in our household. And the beginning lyrics go like this. It says, we fall down. What a picture. We fall down. We lay our crown at the feet of Jesus. And to me, that's such a great picture of what Jesus is talking about here in foundational living that we need to take our crown off and we need to lay it at the feet of Jesus and we need to 
anchor in, not just for our own sake, but for the sake of those around us. And the way he'll use us in those moments and then the peace and the contentment that he brings to our life throughout that process. Will you just stand with me now? I'm gonna pray. And in this moment, if as we sing, if, if, if you're working through something right now and you need to pray, I'd say grab somebody around you. If you wanna come up front and you, you want somebody to pray with you at the altars, if you wanna come up here, I'll be up here. You want me to pray for you? Just a, a prayer of strengthening. Maybe there's something in, in your heart, in your life that you're recognizing that, that God is speaking to you today and saying, hey, that thing right there, I, I wanna work through that. Whether you wanna work through that in your seat, whether you wanna come up here, that's your choice. But I would ask you this, that you not leave without doing business with God in those moments, in those areas. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this time. Father, I pray that you just speak to us now in this moment and may we just respond to you. Where is it, Father, that, that, that we need to do a better job of laying our crown down and falling before you at your feet? Father, speak to us. Show us now in this moment. In your name, amen.